Good morning. So today is a, a special day. It's, uh, it's like a, a middle day. The day before, yesterday was, uh, what was yesterday? Independence Day, 4th of July. And then tomorrow is uh, almost as an important a day. Anybody know what that is? My 35th anniversary. Come on! Why don't you guys know that? 35 years of, is that independence or lack of it? I don't know what it is, marriage. It's, what is it? Wedded bliss. That's, that's great. So thank you, uh, Christina, for staying married to me for 35 years. Hope that continues. All right. Good job. So the title of this message is Living in a Hostile World. I get this from Romans chapter 8, verse 7, among other places where the Apostle Paul writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those whose minds are set on the flesh, uh, who've not entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who've not entered the kingdom of God, but remain uh, part of this kingdom, the kingdom of this world. They have a mind that is hostile, that word hostile, uh, opposed, set up against God. And this hostility to God means that they are also hostile to God's people. In John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus is praying for his disciples, his disciples then and his disciples that would follow. And he makes that clear. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. When we, through the word of God, come to Jesus Christ, we also come out of this world, out of the world, out of the, uh, the worldly system. And being no longer part of the world, the world's response is hatred. They hated Jesus before us, and they hate those who follow after Him. The world is hostile to Jesus and to His followers. Now, as Americans, we've not experienced the full force of this hostility. Yesterday, we celebrated our independence and the freedoms we enjoy in this country. Our Declaration of Independence uh, grants us certain unalienable rights, uh, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as Christians, we're blessed that the First Amendment of our Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We celebrate our freedom of religion. But we need to understand that, that this freedom uh, did not exist in the first century. Christianity was born and the New Testament was written in a world of totalitarianism. For 300 years, there was no legal legitimacy or protection for Christianity. To come out of the world and to convert from one of the, the Roman or other pagan religions to Christianity was to, in fact, risk your life. This was the norm for early Christians. Peter, who, who church tradition says was crucified upside down for his faith, puts it like this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. For the early church, it was not strange to experience trial, suffering, and persecution. It was not strange to experience the hostility of this world. And that hostility has continued throughout history and even 
to this day. In uh, a 19, excuse me, 2019 Christianity Today article titled 11 Places Where Persecuted Christians Need Our Prayers. Let me just hit some of the highlights of that, of those 11 places or, or lowlights. In China, church closings. This is 2019 this was written, just last year. Church closings, arrests, surveillance, and church demolitions are part of life for their 97 million Christians. And I would add, as Tom pointed out this morning, the Chinese government has just imposed the national security law in Hong Kong, and it's likely that similar things will be experienced there. In Algeria, North Africa, over the past two years, the government has closed 14 of the country's 50 churches. In Egypt, where Islam is the state religion, persecution is on the rise. There have been several troubling events so far this year, again 2019, including mobs converging on churches to harass Christians' threats and arrests. In the small East African nation of Eritrea, more than 150 Christians were arrested this year. Christian detainees are often held in harsh conditions without ever being formally charged of crimes. In India, the government continues to restrict restrict the involvement of Christian NGOs and charities, strengthening anti-conversion laws. And local believers have continued to endure attacks from Hindu extremists. In Iran, Christians face intense persecution in a country where converting converting from Islam is illegal. Last month, again, when this article was written... Nine believers were sentenced to five years in prison, each for acting against national security. In Iraq, Christians suffer persecution and the lingering effects of their culture and population being systematically destroyed by Islamic extremists. In North Korea, which which has topped the, the, the world watch list for most dangerous countries for Christians, citizens are taught to worship the ruling Kim family. And so Christian teaching seems uh, particularly threatening. In Saudi Arabia, the public practice of non-Muslim religion is banned. And there are no churches for the country's 1.4 million Christians. Charges of apostasy are still punishable by death. And Christian symbols or meetings of any kind are illegal. In Sri Lanka, coordinated attacks by Muslim extremists on three churches... And three hotels on Easter Sunday this year, 2019, killed 253 people and left 176 children without one or both parents. And finally, in Turkey, the government has systematically revoked Christian visas. The two-year imprisonment of American pastor Andrew Brusson has triggered increased incidents of hate speech against Turkish Protestant communities. Clearly, the world continues to be hostile to God and His people. And even though that hostility, uh, the hostility we experience in the United States of America may not be as overt or physically dangerous, it still exists, and it seems to be growing. There may be other reasons for this increased hostility, including our own ability, inability to obey uh, commands that God gives us to genuinely love Commands like those we find in Romans 12. But I think the main reason for this increased hostility is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, 
and the life. That giving your life to Him as your Lord and Savior is the only way to be forgiven, to be justified, to be saved from eternal separation from God. The only way to receive eternal life. As we sang this morning, nothing but the blood of Jesus saves us. And it's not that this belief has ever been shared by all or even a majority of of Americans. All of our founding fathers were not born-again believers. That's not the issue. The issue is that salvation by faith in Christ alone is moving from being seen as as a belief system that people can accept or reject to being a, a... to, to being seen as exclusive, uh, exclusionary, offensive, hateful, judgmental. There are those in our increasingly secularized society who believe that because of our quote-unquote intolerant views, that Christians are not fit to be public school teachers or to serve in government or a number of other places. Now, fortunately, we still have that First Amendment that protects us against such extreme views, but we know how quickly things can change. And so the question comes to us, as it comes to those Christians uh, who live in places where persecution is overt, how then are we, God's people, to live in this hostile world? Now one option could be that we should live at war with the world. We could fight against and seek to uh, physically destroy those who oppose God, oppose His church. Another answer could be that we're to separate ourselves from the world. We're to have nothing to do with this hostile world. And throughout history, both of those options have been uh, tried out, employed. But neither are found in the Word of God. Instead, we're told two important things about our relationship to this world. We've already seen uh, the first in John 17, 14, when Jesus uh, prayed, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. We as disciples of Jesus Christ do not belong to this world. We're not of this world. Instead, we belong to Christ. However, in the same prayer, Four verses later, verse 18, Jesus says, as in his prayer, as you sent me into the world, speaking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. So we are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. And we are sent, we are given a mission. We're not just sent to hang out. We're sent with a mission, a mission to be witnesses, representatives of Jesus Christ in this hostile world. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says to the church in Corinth. And as ambassadors to this hostile world, we must live in this as a, as a, as a political or a government or country uh, 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 ambassador. They go and they live in the country that they're sent to. And we're sent into this world. And that brings us to our passage for today, Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Remember, Paul, uh, Paul, Tom reminded us this section, these 24 commands are focusing on what it means to have genuine love, to genuinely love one another in the body of Christ and to genuinely love those in uh, this hostile world. 
And many of those 24 commands apply to living in the hostile world. But, but in our verses today, we find three, I think, important principles for living as Christ's representatives to a hostile world, living in and as representatives to a hostile world. And the first principle is live peaceably if possible. Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That word peaceably in the Greek means just what it means uh, to us in English, to be at peace with, not to be at war against, not to strive with. God is a God of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He came into this world to bring peace between a hostile uh, people and their Creator God. And as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us uh, to bring peace. To declare the message of reconciliation between God and humanity. To be people of peace. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we who are sons of God, ambassadors of Jesus Christ, are told to live at peace with all. We're to make every effort, including the, the, I believe, the relinquishing of our own personal rights, if necessary, to live at peace. Remember, Romans 12.3, everyone is commanded not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And in verse 16, we're further commanded, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Relinquishing our pride, our self-centeredness, our high thoughts of ourselves will go a long way to secure peace in our relationship with others. However, there's a problem. Peace is not a one-way street. It involves uh, two parties, if you will. We cannot guarantee that in this hostile world, there will be peace. Paul knows that. He's lived it. As an ambassador for Christ, he's suffered dozens of confrontations with hostile people. People hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, he includes the caveat If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul recognizes it may not be possible to achieve peace. You may, in humility, do all you can with your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers, your employer, your employees. And for some uh, in our world, even with government officials, but still not be able to live peaceably. And this, too, should not seem strange. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said, Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. The point here is not that peace is not precious uh, or desired or to be sought after. It is. The point is that the truth of the gospel, that when Christ comes in, a division occurs. The truth that faith and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to receive forgiveness for sins and be reconciled to God is more important than peace. And therefore, the proclamation of this truth is more precious than peace between people. We must stand on the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. 
even if it means there will be no peace. The gospel creates peace between God and humanity. And the gospel creates lovers of peace and peacemakers. But the hostile world that crucified Jesus Christ does not always want the peace that God offers. So we need to be clear. Paul is appealing to us. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. That's how he began this this chapter and all that follows applies. He's appealing to us. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And what that means is if you're not experiencing peace in a particular relationship, you need to examine yourself. Don't just go right to the, uh, it's not possible. I can't do it. It, I've done everything I can. It, It doesn't depend on me. It's their fault. You need to examine yourself. You need to ask yourself, is this lack of peace, this difficulty, this problem in this relationship because I'm standing on the truth of the gospel? Or is it a result of my own pride? My own desire to have my own needs met? To have my rights upheld, to be who I am, to have my opinions heard or or posted, to have my views taken seriously. If it's because of the gospel, okay, fine. But if it's because of your own pride, your own need for self-validation, then consider whether you've done all you can to maintain peace and to present Jesus Christ in this hostile world, to represent Christ. Maybe there needs to be an apology, an act of love or kindness to live peaceably with all. So first, we're to live peaceably if possible. And second, we are to live trustingly. Is that a word? I didn't look it up, I just used it. Okay. I don't think it read underlined it, so I think it's a word. We're to live trustingly in God's vengeance. Okay, what does that mean? The situation is this. You who are not of this hostile world have been sent into it, okay? And the thing is, you'll not always be able to live at peace. It's a given. It's not strange. You'll undoubtedly experience injustice and hurt and evil at the hands of others. You'll be wronged in some way. Maybe you'll be physically attacked. Or more likely in our culture, you'll be verbally assaulted or somehow undermined in your job or your life. Don't think it's strange. You live in a hostile world. But how are we supposed to deal with this hostility? Well, verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You've been wronged. Injustice has been perpetrated upon you. And God's word says, never avenge yourselves. That word avenge means to vindicate a wrong done against you. To retaliate for an injustice. And we're commanded not to seek vengeance. Now, does that mean there will be no vengeance or justice? No, Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. Trust in God and in His vengeance. Be assured that one way or another, there will be justice. Either your enemy will pay his debt in hell, 
Or he will repent and trust in Christ so that his debt will be paid on the cross. All wrongs will be punished. In God's universe, forgiveness does not mean that some sins receive no punishment. It means that some sins are punished in the suffering of a substitute. The prophet Isaiah wrote, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, uh, mysteriously, if you will, receives the wrath of God for all who trust in Him. But those who do not receive Christ will bear their own guilt, will experience the wrath of God themselves. And that, my friends, is a most dreadful thing. And we must trust in God. In this, as we do in all things, we must leave vengeance to Him. For it is written in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is our rock-solid assurance. Justice will be done. Punishment will be received. Vengeance will come, not at our hands, but at the hands of God. God has the uh, sole prerogative of vengeance in this universe. He is the sole uh, rightful judge, jury, jailer, executioner. If anyone else has the responsibility in these things, it is because God has given it to them. In a few weeks, that's exactly what we'll look at in Romans chapter 13 with regards to governing authorities. God has given them some of this, some of His uh, uh, prerogative in being judge jury, jailer, executioner. But don't miss how profound this is. That vengeance belongs to God. And that God has absolute, has an absolute commitment that justice will be done. That every sin, including those uh, committed by you and me, and, and those committed against you and me, will be punished. The ultimate commitment to bring vengeance to all sin flows from God's very being. The prophet Nahum writes, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. This is God's nature. This is part of who God is. Yes, He's love. Yes, He's merciful. Yes, He's filled with grace, but He's an avenging God as well. God has an unswerving commitment to take vengeance on all sin and evil. Without God's commitment to avenge all sin, there would would have been no need for the cross. There would be no hell. But there was a cross. And there is a terrible prospect of everlasting torment for all who refuse the cross. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the martyrs in heaven cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How certainly and terribly God's vengeance is coming. And what does this mean for us who live in a Hostile world. Notice the word for in the middle of verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The word for means that, that one of the motivations 
One of our motivations for not returning evil for evil is the certainty that the evildoer will be punished by God if they don't repent. Now, this doesn't mean that we rub our hands together. That was weird. (laughs) With subtle hatred, feeling glad that God is going to get them. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 warns against that very thing. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. No, it works like this. We all have been wronged at one time or another. Many of us uh, probably have been wronged seriously by someone who's never apologized or done anything sufficient to make it right. And one of the hindrances to letting that hurt and that bitterness go uh, is the conviction, the justified conviction that justice should be done, that people should not get away with horrible wrongs. That's, that's embedded in us. The, the image of God in us says that. That's one of the hindrances to forgiveness and letting grudges go. We feel that just to let it go would be to admit that, that justice simply won't be done. And we can't do that. So we hold on to anger and we play the story. I know I've done this before. We play the story over and over again. It was wrong. That was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And this word in Romans twelve nineteen is given to us today by God to, to lift that burden. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And this means you can lay down your burden of anger. Lay down the practice of, of nursing your, your hurts with the feelings of being wronged. But laying that down does not mean there was no great wrong done against you. It doesn't mean there's no justice. It doesn't mean that you uh, will not be vindicated. It doesn't mean that that they've gotten away with it. No, it means that that you lay down the burden of of vengeance. You're trusting God will pick it up. This is not a subtle way of getting revenge. This is a way of giving vengeance to the one to whom it belongs. It's taking a deep breath. Perhaps for the first time in in years, in decades, and feeling like now, at last, you may be free to love. Because if you hold on to those things, then your freedom to love, you're, you're held in bondage to your desire for vengeance. And God says, let it go. I'm giving you freedom. You don't have to worry about this. Now you can love, like, I'm, like I, I've told you and I'm going to tell you again right now. You can be free uh, to do our third point. Live lovingly toward your enemies, towards those very people that, that you desire to take vengeance towards. You can now live lovingly, lovingly toward them. It's when we release to God the sins and the wrongs committed against us in this hostile world that, that we're empowered by Him to love in radical ways. Ways that are beyond the comprehension of those in this hostile world. Ways that, that rightly represent the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 
always remember Jesus' radical command in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. And the radical way He lived it out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that radical love demonstrated by Jesus is what we see practically spelled out in Romans chapter 12, verse 20. Never avenge yourself. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This builds on what we saw a few weeks ago in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We are not to seek vengeance against our enemies. But it's more than that. It's not just let it go. It's now pick up something else. Let it go and pick up love. Instead, bless them. And we do that, verse 20 says, by seeking to meet their needs. Paul uses the examples of hunger and thirst. But as we saw when we looked at verse 13, to bless means to desire, uh, to seek the good of. We're to seek the good of our enemies. Seeking to meet their physical, emotional, and most importantly, spiritual needs. In this hostile world, humanity's greatest need by far is a salvation from their sins, is that escape from that uh, vengeance of God, the wrath of God that's coming upon them. Escape from, from God's wrath. And this need can only be met through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Jesus. And so as we seek to meet the physical needs of our enemies, don't forget their spiritual needs as well. In fact, it might well be by humbling yourself not seeking vengeance, offering forgiveness, meeting physical needs, that you will turn an enemy into a friend. A friend that will give you a chance to introduce them to the one and only one who can meet their spiritual needs. So we're to seek to meet the needs of our enemies. And then Paul adds this strange statement to the end of verse 20. For so... For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. Well, that doesn't sound nice. What does that mean? Well, some people believe it has a similar meaning to what, it said, what we talked about already in verse 19. That burning coals represent the wrath of God. So we as Christians can do good to our enemies, recognizing that if they do not repent, God will punish them. And that's true, and it could mean that. However... Most interpreters, including myself, not that I'm a major interpreter, but this seems reasonable to me, think Paul is teaching that Christians are to do good, love their enemies, so that, so that they feel uh, shame and remorse and conviction that leads to repentance. The burning coals represent the conviction they feel because of the kindness shown to them by their enemy. They've hurt you. They know they've hurt you. And you turn around and are kind to them. You, you do something loving for them. You seek to meet their needs. And that's like blows their mind. And I prefer this interpretation because I think it fits better with what comes in the next verse. Where Paul concludes this section by writing, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word overcome is a military word. It's a strong word. And it means to overpower. 
like conquer. The, you get the, 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 the military force the, is, is coming in and they're taking over. Paul says that to repay evil with evil is immediately to lose the battle to evil. The only way to defeat evil is by doing good to the one who's done harm to you. In other words, if you hate a person who's wronged you, that person has won. Evil has won. The only way to defeat the evil is to forgive and love the person. This is pretty radical stuff. Another way to put it is that that when we identify evil too closely with the evildoer, the person, we believe we need to destroy the evildoer in order to destroy the evil. So it seems good to do evil. And we unwittingly become a pawn of this evil force behind the evildoer. J.R.R. Tolkien pictures this in in his book, The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy. Any good person, uh, Frodo Baggins, for example, who uses the ring, he's not a person, he's a hobbit, just so, so you know, I'm not, I'm in tune here. Any uh, one, hobbit or otherwise, who uses the ring of the evil Lord Sauron to fight against him uh, would become evil in the process. This meant that victory against Sauron, if pursued or even ch- achieved in the wrong way, would be utterly hollow. It would, in fact, be a defeat. Because in becoming evil, to beat evil, the ring wearer would have allowed evil to win. Does that make sense? All right. So the secret of overcoming evil is for us to see evil as distinct from the evildoer. The cliche that we love the sinner but hate the sin applies here. Yes, we hate sin. Uh, Abhor evil, we were told in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. But we need to love our physical enemies and see who our true spiritual enemy is. Paul makes this clear to the church in Ephesus when he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In this life... We may have flesh and blood people who who act as our enemies, who who are hostile to us, who seek to hurt us. But there's something behind that evil that they display. And it's not that they're not responsible for it. They are. But there's something behind it. That's the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Satan, his demonic forces. That is our true and ultimate enemy. And so recognizing that our basic goal is to forgive, to love, and show kindness to the flesh and blood evildoer. And when we do that, there are two results. First, the spread of evil is put to a stop in our lives. No, it does not go any further. It does not build and cause us to become uh, what we hate. We're to overcome we're, we're not overcome by evils, the evils of hatred and pride and vengeance and violence when we don't repay evil for evil. And second, the spread of evil may be stopped in that flesh and blood evildoer. He or she may be softened uh, as the burning coals come upon their head. 
They may be softened. Our loving reaction to their evil may cause them to experience shame and remorse and conviction and rebuke. And it may lead to their repentance. And you know what? If that's not what you want in your enemies, then you have a problem. And, and we, we might have this problem and we have to work it over. If you, I do not want that person to come to Jesus. You know, they do not deserve to come to Jesus. Well, neither do you. Neither did I, do you. No one deserves to come to Jesus. It's only by His mercy and grace that we come to Jesus. And so, and so we need to get over that. We need to ask God to help us get over that. And in, and in doing good to those who do evil to us in this, in this good or godly way, we overcome evil in our life and in the life of our enemy. They come out of this hostile, evil world, that is if they repent, and enter into the, the good and glorious kingdom of God. So we've seen three uh, principles for living in this hostile world. Live peaceably, if possible. Live trustingly in God's vengeance. And finally, live lovingly toward your enemy. So I charge you to just do it. You guys good with that? Just go be warmed and filled and do that. Well, I hope you realize, I mean, it's, it's pretty, I mean, this is like totally radical stuff. This is, this is I, don't, I don't believe taught anywhere else but in, this, in the Word of God, this kind of acting towards enemies. It's kind of love that forgives so I hope we realize that just doing it, living in this radical way, is, is way beyond our human abilities. So next week, cliffhanger, doo -doo, right? Along with uh, communion, we'll celebrate communion together, and I think it'll all tie together. I'm going to review and expand upon how this kind of radical life, detailed in Romans 12, I mean, we're going to, we're going to sort of overview that chapter a little bit. I, I'm not sure, I think, I didn't check this out, but to my knowledge of the Scripture, this is the chapter with the most practical, get-it-done commands in the, all the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna, to, next week, we're going to overview that. And I want us to see uh, how we can do it. I want us to see, again, we've touched on it as we walk through it, but I want to sort of bring it together and see how we can do that. How we can live in this way that will uh, bring glory to God and will be good for us. That's the thing. Uh, God's commands, when obeyed, are, are bring Him glory, and they're the best thing for us. And so, uh, I, I would just ask that you pray with me today, and that you come back tomorrow as we sort of finish this, this up. Not tomorrow, because I won't be here, because it's my anniversary, right? Uh, Father God, thank you again. Lord, your word is radical in ways. We, we struggle with it. Lord, our flesh sometimes rears up and we don't want to do it. Especially commands like we've seen today. Loving our enemy, meeting their needs, that, that seems crazy. Lord, but we trust you. 
Lord, we know you're at work in our lives. We know you're at work in the lives of others. And we trust that, that you've got a plan and your plan is best and your plan will bring you glory and your plan is always in the best interests of your children as well, Father. And I pray that we would have that trust in you. And I pray as we leave this place, uh, that uh, as you've been speaking to our hearts, that we'd be able to live in this way. We'd be able to live with genuine love, not just to the lovely people in our lives, Lord, but to the, in this hostile world. Give us that, that power, that grace. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you as you're dismissed. Uh, again, sort of just work your way outside. We have easy ups out there. I think there's some shade. The sun is coming in and, and just fellowship outside. God bless you.